Well, at the risk of using an all-too-current example in my introduction, many of us found our preparedness for an extended power outage tested. Did we not? I, I know for our family, we had been in California for a week, and we were so relieved to be home. And in less than two hours after setting our suitcases down, we were camping. Um, and uh, that resort we left looked pretty good. You know, for some, when the wind first begins to blow, or a gale warning is forecast, they begin checking through their list of water, canned food, batteries, generator fuel, generator. And I'm sure there could be folks, not me, people I know, who do those preparations every year at the end of summer, going into the winter and and fall season uh, before any hint of foul weather is in the air. And there's different preparations, preparations for earthquake and other natural disasters, but whatever the preparations we make, they are formed by narrowing down the essential priorities of what we need. And what we can do without. Stocking up on light bulbs in advance of a power outage is unlikely to be helpful. Candles would be better. And it's wise to prepare for future events whose time of occurrence is not known to us. Um, It is wise to consider what is and what is not needed when that time comes, there will be another windstorm. And it will take away electricity for a while. Uh, Science and experience tells us that an earthquake is not a maybe, but a certainty. And for us who trust in the word of God, there is the certainty of the return of Jesus to the earth Bodily, not an if, a when. It's in the light of this truth this morning that we're going to consider the words of the Apostle Peter. How we are to hold our minds, holding our minds that brightest hope of the church, the return of Christ. A hope that has stood before faithful believers for more than 2,000 years now. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 4, we'll look at verses 7 through 11. Just five short verses, powerful commanding verses. And if you're using the Bibles in the seat backs, you're going to find it on page 1016. That should indicate that you're starting near the back. Peter anticipates Christ's return, and he directs the church toward priorities, priorities of prayer, active love, and worship. 
He writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we have many expressions in um, Christian speech for the end times, the last days. These are sometimes involved in book titles or ministry names. The writers of the New Testament use this language frequently to describe not a future time, but their own time. Peter is using this about his time 2,000 years back. The end of all things is at hand. Today, many believers use these expressions to describe specific nearness to Christ's coming based upon prophetic interpretation, uh, pervasive evil in our world. I've heard the expression, it can't get much worse than this. Or a perceived apostasy, particularly in the West. The apostles used these terms to refer to a time between the coming of the Messiah and his return. This is a time that could simply be called the church age. All the years that were intended in the calm words spoken by the angels in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Those words of the angel describe the end of all things. This church age, this present age, between Jesus' ascension and his bodily return. So that is what Peter is calmly referring to, not the eminent momentary, we think it's going to be tomorrow, But we live in the age where we are prepared for his return. And in light of that, the key word in that opening passage isn't about the end of days, it's the word therefore. This is the command. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... And now we must give particular attention to what follows. If I can accomplish anything in preaching and proclaiming the word of God to you, let it be this. Scripture commands us in how we are to live. 
not a suggested course of action. Not good, better, or best. You and I are living between the first and second coming of Christ. This is how we are to prioritize our lives. That is what follows in the words of Peter. Disciplined prayer, actively loving one another, and genuine worship. Now, like I just spoke of storing up candles instead of light bulbs, there are many things that we commonly fill up our time with. And sometimes it's at the expense of these three. Prayer, loving one another, and worship. It's easy enough to do. It's very easy for me to do. It was easy in the early church. It was easy in the Middle Ages to lose your priorities. And it's easy today. Thankfully, God has provided us with these and other inspired words in Scripture to direct us in our spiritual growth, to help us remember what is essential to become mature in Christ. So then, because the end of all things is at hand, make a priority of disciplined prayer. Prayer is as personal as the individual. In my uh, pastoral ministry, um, I, on a couple of occasions, had men one that I'm particularly thinking of, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, was uncomfortable praying publicly. He was not uncomfortable with shouting at a hundred men all at once. But before a holy God, he felt discomfort. My first encouragement to him was, Vernon, you're getting it right. Because you have a sense of whom you're speaking to. But prayer is personal. Perhaps your concern is being genuine in your prayers, or being focused in your prayers, or being frequent in your prayer. We all have different patterns and experiences that shape our prayer life. But here, Peter is giving us two priorities in prayer to follow. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, Another translation makes it disciplined and serious. When was the last time you gave intentional attention to the quality of your prayer? The goal is to be aware of whom we are speaking to. And rather than a carefully crafted word, it's the attitude of our heart toward God. And that's most important. To that end, the Reformation theologian, John Calvin, included rules for prayer in his comprehensive work on faith called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, Some of you who know me a little bit know that I'm just not a fiction guy. 
I try. Chris, I read that book you gave me. Is it nine months it took me to read that? So when I went on vacation a few weeks ago, I took the, the Institutes was going to be my travel read. Yeah. You, you, you got where I'm going with this. It's not dry, but boy, it's a deep swim. And in there, he covers, it's, it's addressed to the king of France. And he's making the case for Protestant Christianity. And so he covers everything in grand detail. And in book four, he covers Christian living. And in chapter 20 of book four, he covers prayer. And he lists five rules for prayer. Pray with reverence. Now think of the Lord's Prayer here. Hallowed be your name. And my friend Vernon, who could speak confidently in any situation, command a room, but in prayer, he was before the holiness of God. He did not pray casually, but reverently. And he mistook it for lacking confidence. Second is to pray from a position of want. Uh, This is a little uncommon for us and maybe a little uncomfortable, but we're unable to do for ourselves. Sorry. Everything that we have, including the breath that I just said those words with, is the gift from the hand of God. We can do nothing for ourselves. All we have or ask for is contained in the providence of a sovereign God. We are completely dependent. That should be reflected in our heart attitude as we go to prayer. Three, pray humbly. A reminder to push away any sense of pride or entitlement. It has no place before God in our prayers. This is best accomplished by cultivating the contrary attitude to pride, which is thankfulness. As Paul says to the Philippian church, in all things when you pray, with thankfulness. Fourth, pray confidently. Okay, now after those first few, this might seem like a little bit of a gear shift, but follow me. Yes, we approach a holy, majestic God. And yes, we have nothing in ourselves to merit his attention, we are nonetheless told to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Our prayers should reflect confidence that we are heard and that our concerns, however simple, matter to our Father. And this point is linked very strongly to the fifth, which is that we pray in Jesus' name. 
Now, I know some of you have noticed that in Sunday school or in other instances, I don't always say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. And I wanted to share that with you, why sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Because I grew up in the church. I didn't want to, but I did. And I have a lot of Christian patterns. One of them is you always say in Jesus' name just before the amen. And it became for me, on a little bit of reflection, that I was kind of being superstitious. Because if I didn't say in Jesus' name, I questioned, was I praying right? I'm doing it wrong. And I realized it was a meaningless pattern in my prayer. It was actually detracting from my concentration on the Lord. And I was turning that concentration toward me. So what does it mean then when we say pray in Jesus' name? Well, it's more than a phrase tagged on the end of a prayer. It is only due to the finished work and mediatorial ministry of God the Son that our prayers go to the Father in any meaningful way. It is because of what Christ has done and is presently doing, speaking our name before the Father. When Doug Schuster prays, Jesus Christ says, Father, he's mine. He mediates in Jesus' name. Doug prays. Whether he tags that word on before the amen or not, we only pray because of what Christ has done and is doing. That should never be lost when we go in prayer. Now, verses 8 through 11 through the end of this passage, they describe three ways that we are to relate to one another in love. First, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Wow, uh, above all. That means, really, top priority. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly. This reminds us, as Scripture does over and over again, that we are commanded to grow up in Christ with one another. You can pray privately. You cannot mature in Christ privately. You cannot love one another solo. It's just kind of a logical impossibility. And Scripture says, love one another. Encouraging and challenging each other, being accountable not just for moral behavior, but for supporting the growth and maturity of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are accountable to one another. This is what Christian love is. Seeing one another through sometimes seeing one another through that sometimes difficult journey of our sanctification 
We are not the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and transforms us day by day, bit by bit. But we are the ones who come alongside and walk with one another through that journey. The famous anthropologist, Margaret Mead, was asked once what she thought were the earliest signs of human civilization. People expected to hear something like agriculture or stationary settlements rather than a nomadic lifestyle. Instead, her, her answer for the earliest signs of human civilization was the finding of when they would find a, like a long leg bone that had broken and healed. She said that in ancient times, if you broke a leg, you died. Unless there was another person who would care for you. And so when digging up ancient bones and you find this individual's leg broke and then it knit back together, for me, it was a sure sign that there had been another person who gave of themselves to care for this person. And that is the essence of human civilization. Love, support, and meaningful involvement in the care of others is Christian love, pure and simple. The second point is to show hospitality to one another <laughs> without grumbling. Don't you love it when Scripture throws that postscript in there? Oh, I'll have somebody over for coffee because they had me over for coffee. And then I'm out. This is not the sort of thing you can do solo either. Hospitality. You might invite people over and they don't come. But that's a different story. This is opening your life to the lives of others. This command to hospitality intrinsically drives us into one another's lives. For this, I want to cross-reference the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 35. Because it will, it will help us, I think. For I was hungry, he says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked. And you clothed me. I was, a, I was sick. And you took care of me. I was in prison. And you visited me. In this example, Jesus is describing people who didn't realize that what they were doing by showing hospitality to others was on par with directly serving Jesus himself. They were surprised. In Jesus telling this, the people in his story said, Lord, when did we ever do that for you? 
And he said, inasmuch as you did this to the least, you did it for me. This highlights the priority of hospitality in God's house rules. And we, in this worship service, live under God's house rules. And look at all those ways that you can exercise it. A meal, a drink, a moment of your time, clothing, care, a moment of your time. The third item in this category is using our God-given gifts to serve others. Each has received a gift, Peter says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Um, Now, I want to take that sentence apart, just just a, a touch. Peter describes the use of God's gifts as stewardship, like managing wealth or anything of great value that belongs to someone else. It must be done thoughtfully and with purpose. Peter gives significant attention to four details in that statement. Each one of us has received, this means you, you're in, you are not in the body of Christ, ungifted. You might not like your giftedness or value your giftedness, and that's okay. But you use your giftedness to serve one another. Uh, This is the reason for the gifts, not to serve you, but to serve others. We We are given gifts for the purpose of serving others. And then God's varied grace, he uses that phrase. Your gift is not my gift. I heard it was related to marriage, but it works in other relationships. If two people are in agreement on everything, one of them is unnecessary. We have varied gifts because we are to use them for others and not for ourselves. His purpose for you is as unique as you are. And your giftedness is to that purpose. And finally, by the Holy Spirit's power, whoever speaks... As one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We are are never to lose sight of whose gifts these are. I mean, we say God's gifts and conclude that they are from him, and that's actually true. They are from him to us. But they are also God's gifts in respect to the fact that they never stop being His. God, being the Creator, cannot give anything away. There's no one outside of creation He can give it to. And everything He has made belongs to Him. 
and he has made you, and he has made you gifted, and the gift belongs to him. We are stewards of his gifts. And our abilities and attributes are given for God's purpose. When we speak encouragement or rebuke, it's not based on our authority or judgment. When we serve in love and compassion, it's not out of our own ability. As John writes, the Apostle John writes, we love because he first loved us. And there are, as I mentioned, there's three categories. Prayer, active Christian love, and finally, Peter ends with worship. Worship is the priority of why we do these things, why we obey. And the answer to that why question is because he is worthy. The last sentence segment in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The reason, the why we love one another. The why we serve one another with his gifts is that God may in everything be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's the only reason that matters. Do you see the chain of connection in Peter's words? We pray, love, and serve in Jesus' name, and through Jesus, God the Father is glorified. Because of him, our works can glorify the Father. The final sentence of this passage is a very special kind of sentence. To him belong glory, dominion, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's called a doxology. And there's a number of them in Scripture. From the Greek word doxa, which has an interesting history, but part of that history is when Hebrew scholars were seeking the word, the Greek word, for the Hebrew meaning glory. They chose doxa in the Greek. Doxa for glory. And of course, ology, we're familiar with that suffix. It's a subject of study, right? Biology is the study of life. Anthropology is the study of man. Doxology is the particular attention to the glory of God. And when we find a piece of sentence where the author actually steps out of the flow of speaking to us and begins to speak in what could be nothing else but worship. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We find a closing statement to the why we serve, why we love. 
and that is that Peter himself was unrestrained in speaking to us and slipped into worship to cap these important messages, commands to the church. This is why we do what we do. This is the ultimate purpose of our obedience to Scripture's command. This is why we are His. Because to Him belong the glory and power forever. Ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We pray that your spirit will seal this command to our hearts. There is no application but to obey your call on us. Lord, may we understand our giftedness from you. Respect it and use it to your glory. Father, I pray you deepen the love of your people for your people, for your glory, that people would look from the outside at the church and your name would be magnified. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.